Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, yous guys! <laughs> She's putting on a weird voice today for some the reason. The Irishman! That's not... That's, that is offensive. <laughs> I mate. I'm the Irishman. That's not... That's more Australian than anything, I would suppose, but... Wow. Um, no, we're talking about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. So in our last episode, we did this really long... Um, sort of overview of Martin Scorsese's feature film filmography and sort of the lead up to this episode talking about his new film, The Irishman, which is now available on Netflix. And uh, we're going to talk about the film. We won't be any spoilers unless you consider what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, a spoiler 30 years after the fact. (laughs) Um, But uh, we'll, we'll be talking about the film and then we'll finish up with recently watched. So uh, kicking things off, Irishman, you know, I think one of the things about this film that was really before it got screened and before people saw it was like, oh, man, it's so long. It's three and a half hours, you know, and I don't know, which to me is sort of like if I said to you, the Irishman is a four part miniseries, you'd be like, I will binge that shit. I was like, but what if it's a movie? (laughs) No, that's too long for a movie. It's so weird the way like people like want to like process content. But the thing is, is it doesn't feel like a long film. Like it feels it like Scorsese know, and, and Thelma Schumacher know how to edit. They know how to keep the pacing up so that even if a film has a lot of runtime, that doesn't necessarily mean it feels long. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's very frustrating. And I think it's it's also I mean, there are definitely some long movies that like. Like, I don't necessarily think uh, Return of the King, like the the emotional impact of Return of the King is not contingent upon you sitting there for the entire three hours and experiencing the whole thing in one fell swoop, especially because it had two movies preceding it. Um, And so, like, if you want to watch an hour of Return of the King and then come back to it, like, I don't think it's that huge of a deal but the irishman is so meticulously crafted in the way that it works like that it is kind of essential that you do sit through it all in one sitting because the whole point of the film is that you've lived frank sheeran's life alongside him so that when you get to the end and he's feeling he's experiencing feelings of regret and sorrow and uh kind of confusion and loneliness you also feel those feelings because you also feel like you have known these people that he's been with you know the people that he murdered uh you know the life that he lived because you lived through it and i think you know that's part of a whole of that goes right with the de-aging effects which like some people were like oh it's kind of a gimmick it's kind of a weird thing but it works beautifully because you sit there for three hours watching them literally age before your eyes. And in that final act, you're like, holy shit, they're old. And then you just start feeling, you start thinking about your own mortality and it gets really sad and really real. But if you're bringing that up into like 30, 45 minute, one hour chunks, you're like, Oh, where did like, you're watching it from a plot perspective at that point, And you're not experiencing the filmmaking. Right. And that thing is, is that film just isn't plot. And if that's really all you think films are, then just read Wikipedia and pretend like you saw the film. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. And you wrote a great article that's on the site right now about how it really should be seen in one sitting. And my fear going into it was being like, oh, what if it's like a Roma situation? Because like last year with Roma, I was like, you you can watch Roma at home, but I will level with you and be like, this is kind of a slow black and white film that's primarily in a language that's not English, <laughs> you know, and that, that, that doesn't make it good or bad. It's just what it is. And I think the film is great, but also at the same time, I'm like, Roma is not like a film that will 
string you along in terms of entertainment. Roma is, you know, digging through Alfonso Coron's memory. So if you want to watch Roma at home, the best way to do it is to like put your cell phone away, rid yourself of distractions, you know, and really focus on Roma. And I would say, but for The Irishman, The Irishman is a fun movie. Like, I mean, like you said, it gets pretty heavy at the end, but it's a film that like knows how to crack a joke. It knows how to be entertaining. Performances are vivacious. Like, like this is like the first time I've, I, I can't remember the last time I enjoyed an Al Pacino performance so much. And it's not that Al Pacino has changed, really. He's still the, ah, Al, but like, it's so weird seeing Al Pacino now, because like when you go back to the Godfather, he plays his stuff so quietly and just really meticulous. And then, and then he'll might give you a little outburst and now it's all outbursts. And, uh, but it's fun. It's fun watching him play Jimmy Hoffa. And I thought Joe Pesci was so good and so sympathetic, uh, as uh, Russell Buffalino. Um, like even though that, that's the performance that surprised me the most was Pesci as Buffalino, and especially when I went back and watched Goodfellas and Casino again, like you know, especially in the Scorsese movies, he was kind of typecast as this kind of loose cannon, uh, like a violent could, hothead. Yeah, who could blow at any moment, and even in Home Alone, like he's he's kind of loud and and whatever, but like it's a very quietly intense performance that he gives here. Like you feel like he, you know, he's probably killed a lot of people in his life, but he's not really doing it anymore. But you know, he has the power to get people killed. Yeah, it's a very quiet kind of tender performance. He doesn't go loud. It feels very different from like what we normally associate with Pesci. Um, and especially, and I think part of that is because Pesci's been retired for so long as well. And so this sort yeah. of feels like a return. I think is what his last film was the good shepherd. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know if you listened to the, the New York film festival Q and a after the film's premiere where the moderator asked Joe Pesci, if he could speak to, you know, being in the crowd just left. And it was like, I don't know what you want me to say. I don't have anything to say. Yeah. You know what? I would say, you know, let, the thing is, is like, let, let Pesci retire. Like Pesci's retired. Just let him be retired. And honestly, if this is his last movie, he's going out on a <laughs> no, very high. No, note. this is not like Gene Hackman's last movie is welcome to Mooseport, <laughs> which breaks my heart. And I get it. Like if you're Gene Hackman, you're just like, you know what? You never know how a film is going to turn out. And I just want to live my life. Yeah. And if, if yeah, my swan song is well, yeah, like, to you know, sport, I think it's so a nice it. reminder that, you know, not every iconic movie star wants to continue working um, for their entire lives. Uh, I mean, some of the lesser known ones have to, you know, in order to make a living or just really love it. But if you're Jack Nicholson, like you've lived a life and you just want to kind of take a break and just, you know, enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I mean, what what more what what other horizons do you have to conquer? You've been in hit movies. You've won Oscars. You've like you're a respected legend in your field. Like you don't like what what use is there to being like and I'll show up in a supporting role. Yeah, and let, let's be honest, like the the last <laughs> like, like, you know, few films that Nicholson end? was making us like, you know, whatever the fuck I'll do. Like as we talked in our Scorsese podcast on The Departed. Like, he's given a pretty wackadoo performance in that movie. <laughs> you have stuff like anger management. Um, and then, you know, How Do You Know was very much a favor to James L. Brooks. But, uh, yeah. But let Pesci retire in peace. But I, I definitely agree with you. Like, this, this is a what a great one to go out on. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the all three performances. And that's the thing about these performances. It's not like, especially for De Niro and Pacino, who have, <laughs> let, to put it charitably, been a little uneven this past decade or so. You know, when you see Robert De Niro's name on a marquee, that doesn't instantly inspire confidence like it used to. But all three of them are really good and they're really attuned to these roles. And I think that also speaks to the respect they have for Martin Scorsese and the kind of performances that like Scorsese can get from them. This isn't like, ah, I just want to hang yeah. out with my buddies and get yeah, a paycheck. Like everyone evident that, really like, cares about their hearts the film into they this and, and, you know, and I think De Niro and, and Pacino have been upfront about the fact that uh, they did, what was it called? Righteous Kill? Yeah. And like they did that, and then they both were like, "Yeah, that wasn't very righteous." Like, De Niro, I think it's Nero who said like they they felt like they wanted to do one together that like would really um, make its mark and would really uh, live up to the fans, and he felt like that Righteous Kill did not live up to the promise of them working together, and it it felt like De Niro honestly was like bugging Scorsese to like get him in a good movie again. <laughs> Because uh, he had been trying to get Scorsese to make The Irishman for like the past decade, I think. Yeah, I mean that's the thing when you're Scorsese, you've got to you can kind of do what I don't want to say you can do whatever you want because yeah. he had to go to Netflix to make this movie because Paramount wouldn't make it. But Scorsese doesn't lack for projects. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, so to sort of get on his dance card and be like, Hey, will you devote the next few years of your life to, to making this movie, um, is, is a, you know, but I think De Niro, and he is, takes a long time uh, to make know, movies too. So when Scorsese chooses something, you know, it's, uh, is you know, terrific. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all in. Yeah, it's not like it takes him a long time, out um, film but yeah, this is just months. like, it's in, how old is Martin Scorsese? Seeing his 80s yet? No, he's 70 something. And he's like, I would go so far as to say the Irishman is is kind of a masterpiece. Yeah. I would say it's definitely a masterpiece of late Scorsese. Like, I think if you look, especially if you look at Silence and uh, if you look at Silence and the Irishman together, whereas Silence is sort of a return to Scorsese meditating on his faith. And then Irishman is a meditation yeah. on his morale. And it's a, it's a really like nice conclusion to the gangster films that he made from Goodfellas to Casino. I mean, Goodfellas and Casino both have this kind of uh, vivaciousness to them and this visceral quality to the filmmaking, whereas The Irishman is much more methodical and reflective, um, you know, given, given thematically where it goes. Yeah, no, it's it, it definitely feels like a kind of film that Scorsese could not have made 20 years ago. It's a film that has to be lived in. It has to have the the weight of age to it. And that's not to say that Scorsese carries the burden of I've killed so many people. But I think there is that sort of notion of like, what do I regret? What are the relationships that weren't that I didn't take care of that I, you know, all that kind of weight that comes with looking back on your life. And I don't think Scorsese is, you know, you know, cause we're Frank Sheeran, like, you know, the way this film kind of twists itself to sort of go from kind of like a standard gangster film, which is fine. Like a really good gangster film to the weight of Sheeran's experiences. That's, that's what it has to, to rest on. And I think sort of 
Scorsese can, can yeah it does it feels very personal what, and I interviewed uh, the cinematographer or, or Frank Prito and he said that it you know it became very clear that there were some uh, uh, autobiographical aspects of this film for Scorsese uh, not in terms of like I don't think Scorsese's ever killed anyone um, but uh, it, you know feeling that encroaching mortality like this film is all about mortality and and looking back on your life and considering what did you do. What did you do it for, and what did it matter? Um, and those are tough questions, especially as you get towards the end of your life. Uh, you know, those are tough, tough questions for any point in your life, but especially as you get towards the end of it, there's no do-over button, there's no redo, and things you thought were so important in the moment, and and you know, people who you thought would would just be forever powerful and forever iconic are forgotten to the sands of time, and. It feels like Scorsese kind of working out his legacy a bit and and kind of considering his own life decisions and his own uh, artistic contributions, um, which, you know, as we just talked about in that entire podcast, are monumental. Um, but it is very reflective. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a film that carries that weight with it. and I And I like that it's there and it kind of... I, I'm a little bummed out that it's on Netflix simply because I think had theater chains given this a, a chance or if Paramount had given it a chance to to be as long as it needed and if theater chains had given it a chance, I think there is an audience for this film. There's an audience for this film that yeah. they are older people now. Like they saw, you know, I mean, Goodfellas came out in 90. Um, and, you know, it's almost been 30 years since Goodfellas came out. So if you saw Goodfellas when you were 35, you're now going to be 65. And like, I think there would be people that would appreciate and want to see these actors reunited on the screen and take in what this film is doing. Like this film is, again, it's not boring. It is entertaining, but it is also a movie for adults. And I think the fact that uh, the only way to get it made was to put it on Netflix where it could be in theaters for like three weeks before hitting streaming says to me that the powers that be in terms of Hollywood, uh, the major Hollywood studios and the major theater chains say there's no market for movies. I would agree with that, but I would also uh, you know, get back. I would to counter that with the way that Scorsese wanted to make it, which is as a three and a half hour, incredibly expensive endeavor, uh, is a rough sell for any filmmaker and any cast and any studio. Um, it wasn't an easy sell, but I would also say it's an like, yeah, I'll put yeah. it this way. How much but money the executive between the men and black international is not going to get fired over it because that's an easy. No, no, Tom Rothman won't get fired because it's like, hey, it's a fucking IP. Whereas I guess saying Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, wants to reunite Oscar winner Al Pacino, Oscar winner Robert De Niro, and Oscar winner. I mean, Joe I Pesci think the, the sad truth of the matter is that, I guess that was too from far comps and that you're looking at like, all right, what's the international appeal was, of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino at this point in time? How much did, you know, silence make internationally? Right. Uh, you know, how much money can we? Mm-hmm. No, you're right. There are definitely are there. I'm not saying there aren't arguments against it. Like I'm not going to go come out here and be like Irishman is a slam dunk. Yeah, and he tried. I mean, so Silence was made for Paramount. That, that was a two-hour and forty-minute, uh, very adult drama. 
um, very tough sell, uh, much tougher than the Irishman. It only made $23 million worldwide. Uh, and that's rough. And so Scorsese was going to make the Irishman at Paramount, but then they became really uneasy about the cost. And I do remember all of the fights with Paramount over the running time of Wolf of Wall Street, which Scorsese, I think Scorsese wanted it to be over three hours and they mandated it had to be three hours or less, uh, which is why it is exactly three hours long. He milked that thing for what it's worth. But the Wolf of Wall Street feels like a movie made by like a 29-year-old. Like that movie is so snappy and full of life and vibrancy. Uh, it's kind of insane. And then he goes and makes silence, which is so reflective and so quiet, much quieter and much more reflective than the Irishman. Silence is a much tougher sit than the Irishman. I think the Irishman is a very easy sit. Um, but I do think when the movie is going to cost $250, $300 million and it's going to be three and a half hours long because that's what the story needs. You need to live the life with Frank Sheeran. Uh, it's a very tough sell. It is, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like what other epics were like theatric release and how they did, but that was probably a time before, you know, Independence Day changed everything because of the the massive special effects in that movie, which just kind of started taking over Hollywood in the late 90s um, and kind of edged out movies like this. I mean, I guess The English Patient was released. That's really long and boring, but... <laughs> That movie's so long and boring. Uh, yeah, the English version made two hundred thirty-one <laughs> oh, million dollars worldwide. Patient. That movie's two hours and forty-two minutes, and it's a romance. That's super boring. Uh, but it's just so forgettable. Uh, there are a lot of this will now just become like an English patient um, sucks podcast. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's Oscar winner Al Pacino, Oscar winner Robert De Niro, Oscar winner Martin Scorsese, another gangster movie, Oscar winner Joe Pesci. Uh, you know, these crazy de-aging effects where De Niro and uh, Pacino are going to be playing like 40-something-year-old versions of themselves. It's a bummer that that's not a bigger deal. And I will say to Netflix's credit, they are making it a big deal. Like I've seen a lot of marketing for it. Yeah. I've seen a lot of marketing for it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think when you go to the Netflix homepage, I think no matter who you are, it's the the like number one biggest thing um just right up top there so you know they're doing what they can i'm glad that he got it made i'm glad that it exists i'm bummed that people don't uh have more of a chance to see it in theaters right and that go this is what goes back to what scorsese was talking about we talked about this on the podcast like it's his beef isn't with you know, Captain Marvel. It's not on an individual basis of, mo of Marvel movies. He's bummed that the movies he sees as blockbusters and Marvel movies being emblematic of that are pushing out. Well, and it is movies. upsetting when or you look he, at, he I mean, like you go to buy movie tickets and you're looking at showtimes and Frozen 2 is on like every 20 minutes. Um, and then you look for something like Ford v. Ferrari or even something like Knives Out. It's on much fewer screens. And that's, you know, less room for films like that to, or less opportunity for films like that to be seen. I mean, there are many times where my fiance and I want to go to the movies and like, it's like, well, you can either see it at 4.20 or at 10.30 at night. And it's like, these times don't work. <laughs> this doesn't work for me. Um, but they're just not giving you a ton of opportunities to see them. So that's, I mean, that's another consideration. And I think that's kind of what Scorsese was getting at. It's not just that these are the only movies being made. These are the only movies being showcased in the box office. It's, it's just pretty nuts. No. 
And so, and the thing with it, with, with, uh, the Irishman is we'll never really know how it performed. I mean, Netflix will, will maybe tweet like 25 billion people saw it on the first weekend. And we're like, whatever you say, Netflix, you know, there's no way to verify it. And there's no, and you don't, you only release data that's favorable to you. So who's to say? Um, I hope people watch it. I hope people give it a chance. Um, I think you will enjoy The Irishman. I think like watching it when I saw it at a screening a few weeks ago, I was like, man, I, I would so very much like to watch this film with like a big plate of Thanksgiving leftovers, like right next to me and just like enjoying it on Netflix. Like I actually like as much as like, I, I know and I very much looking for, I'm, like, I'm very much looking forward to watching to watch it again at home. home. This is not a bad but like the, the press screening and I also need to watch it again because my bladder just nearly made it. But at like the through like two hour, 58 minute mark, I just had to go. So I missed like a solid minute and a half of the movie. Um, so I have not seen all of the Irishmen people. So don't trust anything I'm saying. Um, but it was it was just like a really entertaining experience. Like I really had a good time watching this movie in a dark theater, uh, surrounded by strangers. Well, it was a press screening, so it wasn't a ton of people. But it's it's nice to see it up on screen, and it's nice. I mean, something that goes unsaid, I think, with a lot of Scorsese stuff is his shot composition is insane. Um, You'll be able to read my interview with the cinematographer on Collider next week. Um, and I did interview the same cinematographer Silence for Silence, if you want to go and check that one out. But the way that Scorsese works, like, the guy knows exactly what he wants. Like, he makes the shot lists. He has very specific ideas for where the camera needs to go, um, what is going to be framed up in front of the camera, what the lighting is going to look like, uh, you know, uh, it's it's just very meticulously designed. Whereas some other filmmakers are a little more collaborative with their cinematographer, saying like, "Where do you think we should put the camera? Um, you know, and how do you think we should shoot this scene?" Um... <laughs> I would very much like to see Martin Scorsese team up with Giannis Kaminsky, and Martin Scorsese has all these like shots planned, and then Giannis is like, "Okay, that's all great. <laughs> we but just put what light if, fucking just, yeah, What if we blasted white light?" <laughs> I did interview Giannis, and that was a fun interview. Um, because uh, I mean, he gets a lot of shit for it, and he like admitted he gets so much shit for it, especially from other cinematographers. Uh, what he does is beautiful, but he has a very specific way of like scenes. But yeah, with Scorsese, it very much sounds like you know, I, I kind of like Fincher, um, where Scorsese could probably be the cinematographer too, <laughs> if he had that many hands. But uh, but yeah, that's I mean that's another reason to experience on the big screen because I mean some of these movies even Avengers Endgame like the Russo brothers did not direct every shot in that movie uh, some are visual effects some are second unit director who uh, you know was directing that some are dictated by the visual effects and you know you can't really choose to put the camera somewhere when there's you know literally no actual environment that you're photographing at that moment in time um, but uh, something like the Irishman. You, you just know, and especially also with something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know every single shot was created by that director. And you know every single shot is purposeful. Everything is placed in the frame exactly so. Uh, and I think that's you know another reason why it's such a bummer this isn't in theaters everywhere. Because there are other films out there where the director does not care as much about the shot composition. Uh, you know, it's, it's more about like, you know, uh, just put the famous people in front of the screen and you know, just shoot them and make them look pretty. Yeah. No, it's, it's Scorsese is a gift. We are going to miss him yes. terribly, you know, 
I mean, he, and I can say that because he made a film about, about death and mortality. I'm not saying like he's, I'm not saying like he's going to kick off tomorrow, but he made a film yeah, about mortality. He's, about he's, he's not, and while we're not, on the subject, his age is not Spielberg as is a, a gift to, to and I, I do not understand not seeing yeah, he, every Spielberg movie you can in a theater, even if. People are like, I don't know if I don't know if I'm gonna like BFG. And I'm not how saying BFG is any great shit. How many more opportunities will you have to see a new Spielberg movie? See the BFG, man. Just yeah. fucking do it. Do that. You're taking Spielberg for granted, man. I don't care if you don't <laughs> like Ready it. Player it's, One. It's fine. You know it's what? Fine. That's fine. You're entitled to it, but come on, man. Yeah. People are like, um, I don't I feel know, like we're going to have this next Although time, I am this curious to see a Janusz Kaminski shot uh, musical. That'll be fun. <laughs> um, Oof. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it is um, cinema. All right. Anything else to say about The Irishman? It is. Like there, there. Yeah, it is cinema. Between cinema and not cinema, yeah. it is cinema. Uh, there, there are certain things I'd like to talk about, but I think it would spoil the thematic payoffs. So, uh, yes. but I will have an article about the the final shot of the film running on the site. Uh, so look for that. Uh, all right, let's. For our recently watched, usually we do our own this separate thing. Come across but this, so we're actually going to talk about a film we two both grown ass men get mad about Frozen, Frozen Two. 2. <laughs> <laughs> I too. I think you could not make a more stereotypical film podcast in this moment of two dudes gushing over Martin Scorsese, like, and then we kick down the like, door and be like, matter. "Let me tell you what's wrong just with Frozen 2. Entirely too. fair, man. Just <laughs> throw us out a fucking window, man. I, look, yeah, that's the thing. Like, and here's the thing. Like, I think there are people who have taken a lot from Frozen Two. Like, I think they like. You know, it, it's a story about, you know, the, the bond between sisters and, and you know, finding your own strength. And, and that, that's all well and good. I think, and I wrote about this on the site, the film whiffs on the ending. And I think by whiffing on the ending, it sort of also reveals how forgettable the rest of the movie is. I think, like, and I say this as someone who really enjoyed the first Frozen. It hasn't held up as well on repeat viewings as I would like, but I still think it's a really good film. Uh, I think Frozen 2 is very forgettable. Um, it feels like a movie that the studio mandated and everyone worked really hard on, but they ran out of time. And the studio is like, no, we need a Frozen 2 and you're going to give it to us by this date. Like, we've given you enough time. It's been six years. You have to give us Frozen 2 now. And the result is a film where the songs aren't as good, the characters aren't as well-developed. It's a weird movie because I, th- the I feel like it has some really good potential. Out. I love the idea that there's not a traditional villain. I love the idea that they're kind of trying to answer questions that were posed by the first movie uh, in ways that are not too roundabout. And it poses some interesting scenarios and some interesting questions. I mean, I, I really like when they get to the forest. I think that's just a really interesting idea. I like the idea that Olaf is wrestling with his own maturity and, and coming to understand the world around him. I like the idea that the sisters go off and have the adventure and Kristoff is left back in the woods. The problem is... Oh, it's so good. Jonathan Groff gets the best song in the sequel, I think. Singing uh, a song so being good. lost in the woods. Straight up 80s trash. Yeah, 80s power ballad trash that's actually pretty good. Um, and I will say the songs have grown on me. Like I saw the movie ballad. and I was like, the soundtrack is not very good. And I cannot get these songs out of my head now. Uh, Into the Unknown and Somewhere in the Woods. And uh, I even think the Olaf song is pretty fun. 
Um, I don't know. It could be because my fiance makes me listen to it in the car, but that's beside the point. Uh, I think it poses some interesting ideas and scenarios. I think it boxes itself in like, you know, Christoph is lost in the woods, but then Christoph has nothing to do for the movie. So they're, yeah, they're trying to find things to do with him. And I like that they didn't make right, him the traditional this, like, savior and the traditional right. hero. But I do think there are some reasons that Disney movies hinge on those tropes because they can't figure out what else to do with the guy. Um, and, it, you know, it feels like a bummer because Jonathan Groff is so talented. Uh, it feels like a bummer. He doesn't have a ton to do. Um, but then, as you said, I think it, it whiffs on the thematic ending. Like, this is a movie about reconciling the sins of the past, sins uh, sins inflicted upon uh, people that you did not have any choice in, but affect you and other people and the consequences of those actions and having to acknowledge the consequences of those actions. And the film does not acknowledge the consequences of those actions. The film opts for a happy ending to make everything nice and pretty. Yeah, and you can definitely see like Disney being like, no, it has to go this way because if you if you take it the other way, not only will you bum out the audience, but uh, we yeah, have I mean that's the other consideration, and, and I do sympathize with the filmmakers. I, I like Frozen Two is unlike any other Disney animated movie created in the modern era. I would say, I mean, for one, Disney animation does not make sequels; they just very often do not. Uh, rec- we have, and I think that's indicative of the IP craze. Although we've gotten uh, you know, two in the last <laughs> era that we live in at this point, but traditionally, you know, those sequels that go direct to video. Uh, and I'm not talking about Pixar. Pixar is its own studio; like they create their own films. Pixar has made sequels; they've been great. They have a good track record. Disney Animation. You... Do you not like Cars too? <laughs> they've been okay. Uh, well, I don't some understand. Have been good. Some. The one with a car gets mutilated to death. Um, <laughs> the, the film but it, with it's, car death? it's unique because Frozen 2, you're not only talking about box office prospects, but there's a Frozen ride in Disney World that will be there for a very long time. Merchandising, like all of this hinges on, like the, Q, the quarter one projections for the Walt Disney Company hinge on the success of Frozen 2. Like the merchandise, the shirts, the characters – any kind of spinoff, the launch of Disney Plus, which has, you know, the first Frozen, um, as I said, like the theme parks, these are all ancillary areas that are very dependent upon Frozen 2. So if you make a movie like Zootopia, and it's a risk, but it doesn't, you know, it's not quite a hit, the problem there is like, oh, I guess we don't put a ton of Zootopia merch in the theme parks. Um, If you make a film like Frozen 2, and if it makes people feel really bad at the end, and if it makes people angry at the characters at the end, uh, those people may then reflexively not like the first movie as much, which then affects, you know, the characters in the theme parks and the merchandising sales and all of that stuff. Um, So it is – it's a unique scenario, and it very much feels like this film was heading towards one ending, and they were told you cannot do that ending. You have to change it because it almost – it feels like it reshoots at the end almost, and I know it's not, but – Right, and – it does. And that's sort of, yeah, well, that's sort of like the limitations of like woke Disney, whereas like Disney is like, they're putting out these film, like these new versions of their movies, like Beauty and the Beast, where it's like Belle is into, you know, she's going to save herself and she's like into learning and teaching other young girls, you know, to sort of, but it's, but the limits of Disney's like, you know, performative wokeness is that. They're not going to do anything that really chant like Disney is always in the bottom line. So if they can perform, you know, social awareness and, you know, 
trying to to play up thing, uh, yeah. you know, women and and people of color. Great, but if it gets in the way of the bottom line, <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> you know, just say space, just say water magic solved it, and then go on with your day. Mm-hmm. It was water magic. Like that's the thing. Like that's the thing. Like Disney, and again, that's why you should never look to like giant corporations for any moral guidance. Guidance. They're not in it for that. They're not in it for you know social justice. And, you know, some people are like, social justice, warrior, whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're not yeah. in it to make the world a better place. They're in it to make money. That's their, and it, that they are legally required. That's the job. They're, they're, they're legally required to make money. That's what being a corporation is. If you are not doing everything in your power to enrich your shareholders, that would be corporate malpractice. Um, so I'm not saying Disney is good or bad, but like just be aware there are limitations to how positive they can be. And so when something like when you get like a Zootopia that's about like, you know, stereotyping and, and you know, racial conflict is its theme. Disney isn't doing that because they're like tuned into social issues. They're just like, oh, well, this movie is also about a fox and a and a bunny and they have an adventure yeah. and it's cool that there's subtext, but right now none of this is getting in the way of us making money. <laughs> so go for it. If there, you know, I think Zootopia two is probably mm-hmm. in the pipeline. They I were considering working on a sequel that. for that. Cause Zootopia then, was a huge hit. It made like a billion dollars. Um, gosh, so, what happened? Well, no, I think it was Zootopia. So Rich Moore, who directed Wreck-It Ralph, was working on the sequel to Wreck-It Ralph 2, and Zootopia was having some problems. So they pulled him off Wreck-It Ralph 2, kind of put pause on Wreck-It Ralph 2 so they could do Zootopia and fix it. And I think it worked out great. I really liked that movie. Then he went back and made Wreck-It Ralph 2, and then Rich Moore left Disney. So uh, I can't remember where he has a deal now. Uh, Is it DreamWorks? No, I'm not sure. Um, Maybe it's Sony. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so I don't think, I, think it, I mean, it, they had I talked maybe so about more Wreck-It Ralph, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure there will be more Wreck-It Ralph. I think there will be a Frozen 3. Yeah. Well, I'm just, yeah, that's the thing. I also don't know, like, that. what's the future of Disney's animated yeah. things? Because I was really excited when Disney was cranking out a lot of original features, you know, like even if it was like an adaptation, like big hero six, it's not like big hero six was like a super duper popular comic that everyone knew. Like I thought like, Oh, big hero six is its own thing. And, and uh, Zootopia is its own thing. And like, I thought that well, was and here's the and shitty now thing it's just it. like, I think we have to acknowledge it's shitty. I think we have to acknowledge John Lasseter had a very positive impact on Walt Disney animation studios. Yeah, very influential, very talented. Obviously, also had oh, a yeah, huge no, impact on Pixar. Human, Both good and bad. I mean, <laughs> he was obsessed with the Cars movies. He's literally the only reason they kept making sequels for those movies because uh, the first movie did not do great. Um, although, I guess I think the merch was doing well. But, uh, you know, we're in a time of transition. I think the next couple of years, we'll get to see what Jennifer Lee's vision for the Walt Disney Company is, or for Walt Disney Animation Studios is, uh, just as we'll get to see what Peak Doctor's vision for Pixar is. Um, which I've heard incredible things about both Onward and Soul, which are Pixar's two movies next year. So um, I think that bodes well. But, you know, again, we're in a period of transition. Like, what is, I think the the slate of upcoming Disney animation films is very exciting. Uh, it's a lot of diverse voices and, and uh, different kinds of stories that Disney animation hasn't really told before. Um, and then obviously, you know, Disney Plus is going to be a major factor. Do, do they milk the frozen franchise for all it's worth and just start making short films and, you know, doing everything they can to just keep getting kids buying frozen merch. I don't. 
The thing is, is you could literally release <laughs> just a series of 10 minutes frozen shorts every few months called Olaf falls on his bottom and they would be the most popular thing with kids. The kids He's in my really audience could funny. not stop laughing during Olaf's song. They thought it was the best thing ever. <laughs> he fell on his bottom. He's again. cute and funny, but like that oh, like, oh, misplaced his, his head again. That's funny. I did like his, his recap of the first frozen. I thought that was a really good moment. Their parents are kids dead. love it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Frozen 2, I just, you know, I went in obviously wanting to like it. Um, there have been people that think it, say it's really bold and exciting, and I just don't see that. I really don't. I yeah, think I would agree that, with that. Although I do, that, that uh, I will stick up for the being song. bold I and think, exciting, uh, but doesn't having, heard the, having listened to the songs more, because I think it was the same way with Frozen 1, where I was like, yeah, Let It Go is pretty good, but I, you know, didn't really think the other ones, and then I got them stuck in my head. Um, so, uh, you know, I think show yourself is a really good showcase for Idina Menzel's and, uh, you know, something never, ch- something that's ever changes is, is kind yeah, of interesting. I like that one. But again, something's never changed feels like, uh, you know, the setup for something that doesn't happen. Like something's never changed, you know, the beginning of the movie, they're all happy and dandy and like everything will stay the same forever. Uh, and things do stay the same by the end like it's not like the i mean they're challenged but nothing is permanent yeah the characters grew a little bit well i guess there is one massive the characters grew a little bit um so yeah there's that one thing but you know other than that it feels pretty status quo Yeah, as a as uh, as a thirty two year old right. white man. <laughs> Anything uh, else to add about Frozen Two, or should we? Without children. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's let's say let a couple white dudes lecture you on Frozen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just really, I can't think of two better people to tell you about Frozen Two. Um, all right, Adam. Well, with that, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.